Welcome back to the Dante's Divine Comedy Podcast. Hope you're having a great morning and a great day. Maybe a coffee if it's early for you. My name is Richard and I will be your host today. And in this episode, we're going to keep talking about the background for the letter from Dante to Cardinal Niccolò da Prato in 1304. And we're going through all the events from 1300, the beginning of 1300 to 1304. And in this episode, we're going to look at the period from November 1301, when Prince Charles of Valois enters the city of Florence, and then until April 1302, about half a year later, when Dante is firmly in exile and the Black Wolves has they have taken full control over Florence. So the context now is that the feud between the Neri and the Bianchi, or the Donati and the Cerchi, has now been growing for almost two years in Florence, when we reached November 1301, when the French prince Charles of Valois finally enters the city with 500 soldiers plus many more with exiles and others in November 1300, at the initiative of Corso Donati and the Neri and Pope Boniface VIII. And then for when it comes to Dante, so he has then participated in banishing the heads of both the Bianchi and Neri as a prior in the summer of 1300, and he also voted against granting the Pope the auxiliary troops of 100 soldiers in the Council of 100 in June 1301. So now with the entering of the French prince, the citizens of Florence are trembling with fear and with uncertainty. So that's kind of the backdrop and what we've covered so far in the first two episodes. So we're going to go through the events now, and then at the end we will talk a little bit about a couple of uh, excerpts from the Divine Comedy when Dante is talking about especially Pope Boniface. But f and all of this makes much more sense. It becomes even more kind of uh, vivid and, and alive when you know the conditions that, that Dante has been through already. So first we're going to look now at the entrance of the French prince into Florence. And as we said before, this is a seismic event in the history of Florence, also the life of Dante and many things that kind of grow out of this. And it's part of the bigger picture with the French king and the papacy and the pope as two superpowers in this part of Europe at the time. So when Charles of Valois, so before he entered, when he was just approaching to Florence and he was staying in Siena, the priors of Florence had been suspicious and they had cons been consulting whether the French prince should be admitted into Florence or not. They had sent ambassadors, but the French prince had answered with friendly words, and that he, quote, came for the well-being and to bring peace among them. And he had sworn that he would acquire no jurisdiction over Florence, that he would assume none of the offices or honors of the city, either in name of the empire or in any other way, and that he would not change any of its laws or customs." End quote. So then when he enters the city, he is met with honor, banners flying, and horses covered with silk and cloth of gold. But the citizens are now full of fear and suspicion of what is going to break out now at any moment. And at the time, the priorate was seen as being weak and without a leader, they were unstable in their policies, and they were not at all competent to understand or counteract against the strategies and geopolitics of Boniface 
Donati and the French prince Charles of Valois. They preferred inaction and spending their time in consultations and gathered a new council of 40 people from both the Bianchi and the Neri, which only made the situation worse and made them lose very valuable time. At the same time, the prince had refused his offered accommodation in Florence and settled in the house of Frascobaldi in Oltrarno. So this is, uh, this is right behind the Piazza Santo Spirito in today's Florence. It's just, again, across the river of Arno, which is just a different city part of Florence today. So, on November the 5th, after just four days in the city, the Podesta, the head of this, uh, the government, captain, priors, all of the councillors, the Bishop of Florence, and all the people of note gathered in the church of Santa Maria Novella, and after some debate concluded to confide to the French prince the care and government of the city with authority to reconcile the Bianchi and Neri factions of the Guelphs. So this is in many ways to just capitulate the city. So the plans of Donati and Boniface to take control of Florence had thereby moved a big step forward. The French prince accepted and swore as the son of a king to preserve the city in a good and peaceful condition. But... At the same time, he had now armed his people after a few first days without any arms. This caused everyone to start arming and fortifying themselves and creating barricades in the city. So all of this is just in the first few days of November. And these words about preserving the city in a good and peaceful condition will very soon <laughs> have a different uh, feeling to them. So... What then happens very shortly after November the 5th is that Corso Donati, head of the Neri, re-enters Florence by breaking in with the help of allies already inside of the city. The Cancellieri family wants to take him, but the Cerchi and the head of the Cerchi, Vieri de Cerchi, he says, let him come. And people then started to flock to the Donati side, and Donati then, with a feeling of empowerment, rushed to the prisons and released the prisoners. Then he went to the palace of the Podesta and the priors and told them to lay down their authority and go home to their houses. So now we have a full kind of <laughs> revolution or revolt or change of, of, uh, of power and government in Florence. And then a full chaos breaks loose in Florence when the city is without a government. Criminals, Nerian exiles, start to rob shops and houses of the Bianchi and anyone who could not defend themselves. For five long days, there was anarchy in Florence with pillage, murder, arson and destruction. All of which was encouraged by Corso Donati as the leader of these horrors. For eight more days, the bands went through the countryside robbing and burning houses. And the French prince did nothing to save the city, as he had promised to do on just November the 5th. But rather he pillaged and extorted money on his own account. Finally things calmed down and Charles elected new priors to fulfill the term of those expelled. And this time they were all from the Neri and the Popolani, which is sort of the upper class autocrats. 
and that a new Podesta, head of the government, was elected, Cante Gabriele da Gubbio, who was a Guelph who had just come to Florence together with the French prince. In the same November, Boniface then again sends Cardinal d'Aquasparte, that we had in the last episode, to Florence to pacify the warring elements in the city. So then the cardinal tries to, to calm down and create um, a, a better situation in the city by, among other things, arranging several marriages between the rival families. And then he tried to divide the offices between the Neri and the Bianchi. This is a very interesting kind of development here. So the Neri then backed by the French prince, absolutely declined, and the cardinal had to leave the city again under a new interdict. So this is a good place to stop for one second and try to think how did this look from, from the perspective of Pope Boniface. Because Boniface is in his own little escalating conflict and war with the French king and he wants Tuscany. So he is now uh, becoming a part of these games of this territory and then he's using the, the French prince together with Donati, to remove his enemies with the Bianchi, and among those Dante, out of the government of Florence. But then suddenly the French prince and the Neri take too much control, and now the Pope is then sending his own legate to try to even out the balance, which is fully rejected. So there's a sense of of that this is one little battleground between the Pope and the French king, where the Pope here has a kind of a setback, where he's losing some of his control over the city and the events. And then we have more conflict, and then we have the decrees starting to come. So on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1301, so now it's just, this is less than two months after the French prince entered Florence. Niccolò de Cerchi is passing through Piazza di Santa Croce, He's seen by Simone, who is a son of Corso Donati, also the only hope from his father, Corso. And he's also Niccolò's nephew. So this one person from the Cerchi family, Niccolò, passes through. Simone follows him uh, until the river that's called the Africo, which is a, a side river to the Arno, who is now underground. And then he kills him, his own uncle. But at the same time, he's also wounded and then Simone dies the following night. So this is seen as an important event because this is the, kind of the, the son and the kind of crown prince of Corso Donati who is then killed. And it also amplifies the, the hostilities between the two families and the two factions. So now, when we have this new Podesta appointed by the Neri and the French prince, we get a string of banishments of the Bianchi. And here comes the big thing when it comes to Dante. We now get the first decree of uh, banishment and exile of Dante on January 27th in 1302. So he's then, quote, accused of barratory, extortion, corruption, and of agitating against the Pope, Charles of Valois, the peace of the city and of the Guelphs, and is condemned to the payment of the sum of 5,000 small florins, and in default thereof, within three days, to the loss of all his goods, and in any case, to an exile without the confines of Tuscany for the period of two years, 
and exclusion from all office or honor. So this is the first uh, decree and the first, uh, first time when Nadante is put into exile in January 1302. And also on the side there, so 5,000 florins, just to get a sense of the, of the fine hair, in, in gold today, that would be about $1 million. In purchasing power, it would be maybe $3 million. <laughs> that it was, that's the fine of Dante. Uh, for other references, the, the, the bank staffers of the Medici, they made about 20 to 50 florins per year. And the architect and supervisors of the Florence Cathedral, his yearly salary was about 100 florins. And also, just for another reference, when the Medici started their bank, the whole banking system in Florence, they started it with 10,000 florins in total. So Dante's fine of 5,000 florins was a very big <laughs> fine. And then since Dante never responded to this decree or paid the fine, he was therefore considered to admit his guilt. And then the second decree comes on March the 10th, still the same year, which condemned him to, quote, to be burned alive, igni cumburator sic quod muriatur, if he ever came into the power of the commune. So we're going to read afterwards a little reference from Purgatory that kind of alludes to this, this, this phrasing of to being burned alive. So, uh, in general, when it comes to Dante at this point, we have no knowledge about where he was or his thoughts about these degrees, decrees in the first few months of 1302. But at this point then, now Dante is then most likely also have escaped the city, he is in exile, and then this whole first, first uh, time period from he became the prior and the city is invaded by a French prince and and uh, the black wolves are then taking power, they almost have full full control at this point. But then they want the full control. So the Neri then, they are pushing to have more banishments and control. So they set up a scheme with the Baron of Prince Valois to lure the Bianchi into a plot to give them back the power and to betray Valois for money. And then many of the Bianchi are being fooled into this and then the plot is revealed to the French prince as was the plan all along and most of the Bianchi involved are then fleeing the city some to Arezzo, some to Pistoia and some to Pisa and because of this on the 4th of April they were condemned as rebels their palace raised and their goods in town and countryside was confiscated there were over 600 people in this decree of banishment, and again, Dante was one of them. So this was then in April of 1302. And Charles of Valois, the French prince, then immediately continues to move on. He starts his campaign towards Sicily, and Flores is firmly in the hands of the Black Guelphs and of Corso Donati. And then also the Bianchi, has been fully removed from the power of the city. So this is kind of the main movement which, which uh, describes how and, and uh, why and the events that led Dante to be thrown into exile for the rest of his life. He doesn't know this at all at the time. There are several 
back and forth, little openings to come back. But the, the result of it historically is that from 1302 until his death in 1321, he is in exile. He never returns to Florence ever again. So we're going to read a couple of, uh, of passages from, from uh, the Divine Comedy. And we're going to have first the one with the burning. This is kind of a little bit infer between the lines I read. Um, in Canto 27 of Purgatory, this is the top of the mountain, and they reach this wall of fire of purification. And it's just something about the wording here that it's uh, kind of alluding to some, some of this, this, uh, this sentence and this decree that he had on himself. Because uh, he says, uh, it says there like then, Holy souls, no farther can you go without first suffering fire. So enter now and be not deaf to what is sung beyond. He said to us as we came up to him. This is uh, the, the angel at the, the angel of joy at the last terrace. I, when I heard those words, felt like a man who is about to be entombed alive, which was the threat of his own city. <laughs> Gripping my hands together, I leaned forward and staring at the fire, I recalled what human bodies look like burned to death. So he wrote this maybe 15 years after he had left left Florence. Um, so that was the part where just like a little alluding to this, this sentence. It's also a time in Florence where people were actually burned alive at the stake. So he might have seen this a few times as well when he was living there. So that was that part. The other part is a little bit more about Boniface and Boniface VIII and his, his um, role and mentions in the comedy. He's mentioned like in countless places, but you have four places that are important. We're just going to look at two of them. We're going to look at where he is positioned in Inferno. And that is in the, the eighth circle in the third Bolgia. Like the eighth circle uh, is for fraud and it's also then uh, separated or kind of divided into ten, 10 rings in the circle. So this is the third one for simony which means the buying or selling of ecclesiastical privileges, for example, pardons or benefices. So, when Dante comes there, he meets the Pope Nicholas III. And he says, <laughs> and this is quite humorous, is that you here already upright? Is that you here already upright, Boniface? By many years, the book has lied to me. Are you fed up so soon with all that wealth for which you did not fear to take by guile the lovely lady, then tear her asunder? So that's where, how we know where, where uh, Boniface is supposed to end up in Inferno. And uh, this that the, for many years the book has lied is because the story is set in 1300. Boniface dies in 1303, which is another interesting story because the French king is very much involved in that. But but just it's nice or interesting to note how he talks about so the lovely lady is the church so all that wealth that you did not fear to take by gal the lovely lady and then tear her asunder which is also so when dante writes this which would be um maybe at the time where the papacy has been moved to avignon so what is happening, so this is more history, we're going to come back to this, but because of Boniface and his overreach and his, his uh, kind of obsessive quest for power, he makes such a 
enemy out of the French king. And what happens then after just one short pope for one year after Boniface, the papacy is moved into France. So the French king takes full control of the papacy after Boniface. So that's also um, a part of this to just understand the significance of Boniface and that he tears asunder the church, especially like the institution of the church and papacy in Rome. Okay, so that's where Boniface is put in, in uh, circle eight of the Inferno. And then we're going to look at the last mention of him. And this, this is a little bit almost stunning. This is Way Into Paradise, the third book. It's in the 10th sphere, which is the Empyrean, which is kind of the pure paradise. It's the, the realm beyond time and space. It's, the, it's in the mind of the divine and it's pure love and light. And this is the last words from Beatrice, which is kind of his guide. She's symbolic of theology and, and uh, divine love. And what, he's, what she says to him, then in, in the last few uh, sentences of her, her speech to him, is that, uh, but God will not permit him to stay long in holy office. He shall be thrust down where Simon Magus pays his guilt, and he shall stuff the Alaniese deeper down. So she's referring to that Clement V, who comes after Boniface, after the short pope in between. <laughs> he, he shall come and after Boniface. So like you have Pope Nicholas III is already in this hole of the Simonists. Then Boniface is going to push him down and then Clement V is going to push him down even harder down into uh, the deep of Inferno or Hell. So this is the last sentence from Beatrice. Stuff the Alaniese. So Alania is where Boniface comes from. She, she, she doesn't use his name, but he, she says directly that uh, stuff the Alaniese deeper down. That's the final word from Dante as a writer in the comedy to his, his enemy in the real life uh, and the one who caused his misery and exile, Pope Boniface VIII. Okay, so we're going to stop this one here. It's about more than 20 minutes. We're going to try to keep them about 20 minutes so um, or less. So hope some of this was interesting. Some more context, uh, both with the history and also specifically Dante's life. And we're getting a little bit closer now to looking at the epistle from Niccolò da Prato that Dante sent to him in 1304. So with that, hope you're still having a great day. And maybe uh, if it's in the morning, a good cup of coffee. And as always, thank you so much for listening and see you again in the next episode.